Here is my question for you today, Marin. Who was the first person to fly? Oh, okay. Well, if we're going airplanes,、mm-hmm. my instinct would be the Wright brothers. Good instinct. I'm going to get to them. Okay. I'm going to get to them. Any ideas or rumors about somebody way before them who flew? Oh, okay. So if we're going all the way back to the beginning,、mm. I would say. Da Vinci. Da Vinci. <laughs> And by that I mean Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> da Vinci to his mates, Italian thinker and tinkerer and painter, famously. Yeah, like full-on polymath of the mid to late fifteenth century.、Uh, yeah, I've also heard of his flying machines, but the question is, did he fly? Oh, like did he get off the ground?、Mm. Ooh. So for this, let's turn to my first expert of the episode, Dr. Peter Jacob, who is the chief curator of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. It's so cool. Have you been? I have not. Oh my god, it's so cool, Greg!、Oh. It's they have all of the like the rockets and the planes hanging from the ceiling. It's it's huge. Oh, like the science museum in London. Yes, yes, and then they also have this extra huge hangar where they have like even more stuff. It's it's incredible. Yeah, I, I read、museum. that it's got the world's largest and most significant collection of aviation and space artifacts. Yes, sir. And I've got you'll love this. I've got this amazing like tidbit, this story from Peter that brings those two worlds together of space and aviation.、Ooh. I'm going to save that right to the end of the okay, podcast. Okay, okay. But it's wonderful. It's lovely. But what did Peter Have to say about Leonardo da Vinci. He was fascinated by flight, and he studied flight in nature quite extensively. And he developed a number of concepts about flight and a number of flying machine designs. For example, 1485-ish, Leonardo draws up detailed plans for a human-powered ornithopter. Like a wing flapping device. I think I've seen it. It kind of looks like a the cross between like a hang glider and a bat. Yeah, and、right? you flap your arms <laughs>、yeah. and you're supposed to fly. But what a guy! There's no evidence that he ever built any of these craft. They just exist in his drawings and in his notebooks. But he was dominated by emulating flight in nature, which is fundamentally impossible for a human being to achieve flight by flapping wings and so forth, because just the musculature and the And the muscle strength and so forth does not translate from a bird or an insect to a human being. Is that still true? Like, are our proportions just forever wrong, and we'll just never be able to get off the ground, like with any kind of like suit or like? You mean even if there's someone who's like super hench? I don't know. Biggest arms and pecs <laughs> in just, the like, world. Genetically modify ourselves to have longer arms. I think in our natural structure. <laughs> We can't fly. Okay, so any other my, thoughts? So sadly, Leonardo da Vinci came up with ideas, drew things, built things, but never actually flew. Okay. Before we get to the Wright brothers,、mm-hmm. so maybe not planes. Think of anything else ooh, that ooh, might have like flew. Like a dirigible, which、yeah. is a hot air balloon. Yeah, so those、like、were airship. Yeah, the hot air balloon. Right. So now we get on to two of my favorite people. Right, another pair of brothers. Your face, you're so cute.、Um, the Montgolfier brothers. <laughs> well, yeah. Are Now, they French? that image of a hot air balloon,、uh-huh. I just find it super captivating. Right,、yeah. especially the first ever one. I don't know if you've seen paintings of it. So, their story, the Montgolfier brothers' story, happens 300 years after. Leonardo da Vinci. We jump from Italy to France. It's 1783. The brothers are about to launch their invention, which is essentially a giant silk bag that you put above a fire. I love this idea, and also just this this history that going all the way back to da Vinci that we all have this dream of flying. We've all dreamed、oh, yeah. of flying, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this persistence of humans to just be like, I'm gonna get up there. I'm gonna do it. But before you put humans up there, you need to. 
put something else up there. In those days, uh, little was known about the upper atmosphere, and uh, there was some concern that uh, perhaps humans couldn't survive at altitude. So an experiment with putting a sheep, a duck, and a rooster in the balloon was taken aloft to see if they would survive getting into the atmosphere. Just to cover all your bases, <laughs> a sheep, a duck, yeah. and a what rooster. What do we need to put up there? Yeah, we, oh, definitely a sheep, a duck. Ah, oh, what's, what's missing? Right, also, mm. like, you could have done, I don't know, like a frog. Add a reptile in there. You got two birds. I read that because they already knew a duck can fly at high altitude, that was essentially there as a control. The rooster was a comparison to the duck, uh, and the sheep was apparently chosen for its similarities to a human. <laughs> hmm. uh, and it was named Montosiel, French for climb to the sky. Again, apologies, my French. Oh, ciel. Wait, that's so cute. What a wonderful name. If I ever have a sheep, (laughs) I'll name it that in honor of the sheep that went to the sky. (laughs) Brilliant. So, animal test flight successful. It's time to move on to a human passenger. And although it's a Montgolfier brother's balloon, it's not one of the Montgolfier brothers who step on board. That is a science teacher by the name of Jean-Francois Pilatre de Rosier. Ah, of course. It's a science teacher. Man, science teachers, they don't get enough credit. They work so hard, both in school and apparently in hot air balloons. Jean-Francois's first successful flight is one where he's still attached to the ground, he's tethered. But then, on November the 21st, 1783, he's joined by a French military officer, Marquis-Francois Dallande, for the first free flight. Together, from the grounds of a chateau on the outskirts of Paris, they step into the basket, the fire is lit, they rise up into the air. And we're off. They reach a height of around 900 metres, around 3,000 feet. They travel a distance of around nine kilometres, just shy of six miles, for 25 minutes before landing on the city ramparts. So they go up and then they go lateral. Yeah, wind, I guess. Uh, cool, okay. Um, so I always wondered how you steer a hot air balloon. That sounds really complicated. Massive rudder? <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm not sure they could actually steer. But the question is, was the Montgolfier brothers' balloon with Jean-Francois Pilatre de Rosier and Marquis-Francois Dallande on board the first human flight? The Montgolfier brothers were the first to fly. Hey. And that's our answer. There you go. Shortest episode of Surprisingly Brilliant Ever. Thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe. We'll be back next week. We're done. (laughs) I'm kidding, obviously. Uh, Way more science history to explore on this one yet. That's a simple one. So the Montgolfier brothers did fly. Yes, but it is not the type of flight that I want to focus on today. Okay. To unpack this, I want to welcome my second expert. My name is Angie Cruz. I asked Angie how she would like to introduce herself in one line, right? This is my normal first question. Let's see, one line bio, that's tough. <laughs> so I'm currently serving as a space subject matter expert in support of the Marine Corps Warfighting Laboratory, but I spent some active duty time in the Marine Corps as a Naval Flight Officer, and I've also gotten a couple of degrees in aerospace engineering and a PhD as well from MIT. I love the experts for this show, Greg. None of them can ever introduce themselves in just one line. It's amazing. Those uh, couple of degrees that she mentions there are a master's in aeronautical engineering and a master's in astronautical engineering. Incredible. That is basically uh, building satellites and how satellites operate. And aeronautics is, you know, flying airplanes and how airplanes operate. So putting lots of things up into the air. Right. She's mega cool. What I love is that she had a Top Gun poster behind her for our call. That's super appropriate. So appropriate. So today I want to discuss who flew first. And I'm defining flight as one, piloted. 
So the Montgolfier brothers tick that box. Okay, sure, because they're 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 in it, guiding, and yeah. they're in it. Okay, cool. Two powered. Hmm. Hmm. Were they powered? Oh, see, it, 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 technically it's gas, but it's not like a motor. It's not like an engine. Right. So it's like rising hot air. Oh, I don't, I'm not sure on that one. Yeah, I don't think that would do that. That's tough. Box. Three and four uh, done under control mm. and for a sustained distance. Okay, so they tick that box as well, right? Check and check. But here is one that they definitely don't tick, and that is five heavier than air flight. Oh, so the actual device itself that is doing the flying, the flying machine, is heavier than air? It's about what you're using to get you up into the air. Okay. Here's Angie. Okay. So lighter than air flight would be like if you're using some type of balloon or a dirigible. So basically you'd use helium and that would basically produce a force that counteracts the weight and allow you to fly. So heavier than air would be like the airplanes we think of now, where really in order to produce lift and, and fly, you, you need thrust or some type of powered engine to create that, that force. I get it. Okay, so balloons and stuff, it's like it's filled with this volume of a substance that is lighter than air. So like helium, something like that. Whereas with a plane, you have to have some kind of force that propels you basically fast enough to counteract these other forces that are acting yeah, on the object. Yeah, we are going to get into those forces. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so the Montgolfier brothers, they use hot air, mm -hmm. uh, which is less dense than standard Parisian air. <laughs> uh, and they use that to lift, to fly. It, it's very French, this air. Therefore, it was lighter than air flight. But it did, of course, lay the foundations for heavier than air flight. Well, there's a famous quote from uh, Benjamin Franklin, who at the time was coincidentally in Paris negotiating the Treaty of Paris at the end of the American Revolution. And he had this view out his hotel window of, of these balloon flights. And uh, someone had asked him, well, what good is this thing? What value in it? And his response is, well, what value is there in a newborn baby? You know, he recognized that this was a technology in its infancy, but it certainly uh, had some potential. Totally, because it's kind of like a proof of concept. It's like, okay, we can get up there. We mm. can get into the air, but now we want to make it better. We want to see if we can go faster. We want to see if we can have more control because balloons are like not the most efficient. Controllable. Controllable, yeah. maybe practical method. of. <laughs> so today we're going to discuss who indeed did the first piloted Powered, controlled, sustained, heavier than air flight. Excellent question. You mentioned the Wright brothers. I did. Mm. And indeed, many of you lot listening are going to be yelling the Wright brothers I mean, out it, it when I ask that first it question. On the North Carolina license plate. Did you know that? I did not know yeah, that. The, so every state has a license plate, and yeah. most of them have like the state motto on uh -huh. it. And North Carolina's state license plate says "First in Flight." Ah. They claim it, but there are other contenders. Oh yes. Whose uh, hats get thrown into the ring for this one? Exact. Uh, there's Alberto Santos Dumont. Okay. There's Gustav. Have Whitehead. Great names. I'm going to tell you their stories, uh, and you will be able to decide whether the Wright brothers were indeed the Wright brothers. Ha! <laughs> Doesn't really God. work. Doesn't really work, does it? Um, I've got two big thoughts about this. Two challenges that we have when we're telling stories from science history, which of course we love on Surprisingly Brilliant. Going to get into them at the end of the podcast. We're also going to get super nerdy about the science of flight. I'm so excited because, about that. Hello, physics. And spoiler alert: no one really agrees on how a plane flies? Wait, really? I thought that was like, we just knew that. Well, hmm. But first, 
after our longest intro ever, <laughs> welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people. I'm Marin Hunsberger. I'm Greg Foote, and for this episode, I am the storyteller, which means Marin knows nothing about what's coming up. I know some things, but yeah, I have no idea what we're going to get into today. So the Wright brothers, uh, Wilbur and Orville. Wilbur is the oldest, born four years before Orville. They both grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Wilbur, great at school, gets a 95 grade average. Uh, Orville, less so. Kind of smashes it in science. Other grades, not as high. uh, But he loves taking things apart. Uh, He's the hands-on guy. Well, both of them actually kind of love taking things apart. They're really inspired and influenced by their mother. She was the daughter of a carriage maker and a wheelwright. And in the Wright family household, she was the one that would fix things. Her father couldn't hammer a nail in straight. Oh, that is amazing. So she was their DIY role model. Wait, so what era are we in here of American history? So it's the end of the 19th century. Okay, so late, uh, late... Wilbur born 1867, Orville born 1871. Got it. So late 1800s, that's when this beginning of the flight is mm, taking place. Yeah, okay. and we're about to cross over. The story will take us into the 1900s. That's kind of where it all really kicks off. Um, but right now, Orville's 15. He's uh, starting a printing business and is soon joined by Wilbur as well. And together... They started a, a small weekly newspaper and kind of forged that partnership that led to the invention of the airplane. So this is kind of the first thing that they make together, this newspaper. Yeah, and here's the next thing they make together. This is also a period of economic distress in the United States. Wilbur and Orville saw their older brothers struggling out in the world. And coincidentally, at this time, the bicycle craze was taking over America. Development of the so-called safety bicycle, where both wheels are the same size as opposed to the ordinary or the penny farthing. That's that funky looking one with the really big front wheel. I love those. Yeah. So we're getting more into like our modern bicycle that we would recognize kind of era. What they call the safety bike, both the same size. And the brothers see this happening and they seize the opportunity and they open up a bike sales and repair shop together. Nice. This is 1892. Wilbur's 25, Orville's 21. They call it the Wright Cycle Exchange, later the Wright Cycle Company. We're going to leave them there, though. You know, Just being bike bros. Yeah, tinkering with the bikes. Um, we're going to briefly introduce a third pair of brothers into this story. Oh, my gosh. Right, we've had the Montgolfiers. We've had the Wrights. There's a trend. Now we've got the Lilienthal's. The Lilienthal brothers, um, because they inspire the Wright brothers into the world of flight. Otto and Gustav Lilienthal, German brothers, got interested in flight. They were actually very much inspired by flight in nature, much like Leonardo was. And they start building flying machines, gliders. And Otto does a lot of the research. He was gathering air pressure data and uh, using various instruments to, to study aerodynamics. And then most importantly, he actually built flying machines. He actually flew. He was the first one to really have a sustained uh, program of flight testing with a series of hang gliders. Oh man, hang gliders. Terrifying. Hate watching people do it, but it's a fascinating concept. It's like a big kite that you kind of like strap yourself to, right? Yeah, I kind of love it because it's so like bare bones. It's so like, come on, nature. That's true. It's, it's again, this human persistence, like, I will have wings, I mm, will do it. Mm. The science of it, of glider flight, is both super simple and tantalizingly complex. For a glider, you don't have an engine on the aircraft, so there's no propulsive force, and you're not going to have a very long distance or range. Essentially, they make me think of Toy Story and that you're just falling with style. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
but but you designed the the glider in a way so that it's as aerodynamic as possible, and that that will allow you to glide further than you know purely ballistic motion. Falling with style, Greg. Great film. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great way to put it. And that's the thing: the shape of your glider is going to influence how far it flies, and that's what Otto starts experimenting with. He built about sixteen different uh, glider designs and was making successful flights of 10 to 15 seconds in duration. And also importantly, it was the time where photography started to appear in newspapers and magazines. So there were actually photographs of Lilienthal flying, which really gave a lot of credibility to the idea that this was possible. Ah, so it's not just fake news. It's like, I can see it with my eyeballs. This guy is in the air. He's doing it. Look at him. He's up there. This reminds me of... um... Watch me soar! (laughs) Look, ma, no hands. (laughs) This reminds me of like when you were a kid and you were trying to perfect the paper airplane aerodynamic design that you would need to like get it all the way into the trash can. This is like the real life version of that. I feel I could do like a whole half hour chat on what is the best design of paper airplane. Yeah, yeah. But let's not get distracted. Um, Those photos of Otto, they're printed in loads of magazines and journals and Wilbur and Orville Wright see them and they're inspired by what they see. Here is what Orville wrote in a letter to the Smithsonian Museum, in fact. Uh, I think it'd be great if you read it. Okay. He said, I am, quote, convinced more firmly that human flight is possible and practicable. It is only a question of knowledge and skill, just as in all acrobatic feats. I am about to begin a systematic study of the subject in preparation for practical work to which I expect to devote what time I can spare from my regular business. I am an enthusiast, but not a crank in the sense that I have some pet theories as to the proper construction of a flying machine. I wish to avail myself of all that is already known and then, if possible, add my might to help on the future worker who will attain final success. I love that whole, I am an enthusiast, not a crank. I'm not crazy. I'm going to do it scientifically. <laughs> and I love that he, he's not anticipating being the be all and end all of this whole flight thing. He just wants to contribute to the journey. Yeah, just do my little thing. Um, spoiler alert. He does. <laughs> kind of kind of is that person. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. um, so uh, he really gets into all the, the research and he's seen what Otto has been doing and what others are doing with gliders. Um, and as the calendar rolls over into the year 1900s... Um, on bicycle wheels, would you say? Rolls in on bicycle <laughs> wheels. Uh, so yeah, turn of the 20th century. Um, the Wright brothers enter the world of flight. Before we launch into that... Launch. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. That is coming up after the break. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. It's 1900 and the Wright brothers are starting their flight experiments. Inspired by the... Lilienthal. Those yeah. guys. And yep. lots of other people as well that have been doing glider work. So they build their own five-foot wingspan kite to test their ideas of control because you've got to be able to control this thing. And that went well, so it's time to step it up. In 1900, they build their first glider and they tested it at a place called Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. I've been there. Have you? I have. To the actual place? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. It's beautiful. It's by the beach and they've got like these beautiful white sand dunes. North Carolina also has wild ponies on the beach. Just FYI. It's a great place you should visit. Oh, (laughs) damn you, coronavirus. (laughs) Today, it's sort of a resort area. But at that time, it was an offbeat place. There was relatively easy rail transport down to uh, Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And from there, they could take a boat across Albemarle Sound to the shoreline there at Kitty Hawk. They selected Kitty Hawk because uh, it's got a load of open space and it's got strong, steady winds. Right, because it's got that beach 
Breeze. Beach vibe. They had designed the glider's aerodynamics based on the figures from Lilienthal's data. And the, while the control system worked satisfactorily, the glider produced far less lift than their calculations predicted it should. So they didn't get off the ground for very long, is what you're saying. Exactly. So they built a bigger one. If in doubt, build a bigger one. Yeah. Um, again, it didn't work as they hoped it would. Huh. They only got about a third of the lift that they calculated. They could have given up at that point and decided, okay, no, flight is too hard. But instead, they decided to figure out all the data themselves. <laughs> so they, they started doing a whole bunch of testing and, and they actually built their own wind tunnel so that they could collect their own aerodynamic data and actually provide a better design that has a, a higher aerodynamic efficiency. Oh, that's very cool. So they're trying to gain more control over all the variables here. And I love their persistence too. They're like, we're going to get it right. We're going to get it right. So they weren't the inventors of the wind tunnel. A dozen or so people had uh, built them before them. But they were the first to use the wind tunnel to get that specific data that they needed to design an airplane. Sure. Um, so what were they measuring? Well, I think it's about time we got into the science. I'm so the ready. Physics, physics, the aerodynamics Greg. of flight. Oh, yeah. So looking forward to this. Here we go. Um, especially because we get to talk about yeah how people disagree about how a plane flies. That is continuing to blow mm. my mind. Let me pass this over then to someone incredibly qualified to talk us through this, Dr. Angie Cruz. So there's four main forces. Uh, there's lift, thrust, weight, and drag. Okay, yes, I'm with you. So starting off with the first one, weight. That's fairly easy to conceptualize. So that's basically just the force that's directed towards the center of Earth through the center gravity of the airplane. Mm -hmm. What's pulling you back down? Okay. Next, we have lift. Lift is used to overcome that weight force, so it's in the opposite direction. And basically, lift is generated by the motion of the plane through the air. Lift is the big one. It's the force that gets the plane off the ground. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. <laughs> in uh, an I'm going to talk about how it actually does that in a second. But first, let's finish these four fundamental forces of flight. Next, you have drag. So drag is a resistance force. So that's like the friction of air moving over the vehicle, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it occurs opposite to your flight direction. There's many factors that go into drag, such as the shape of the aircraft or the smoothness of the aircraft surface or even the, the stickiness of the air or the viscosity. And then finally, there's thrust. And thrust is the forward force that basically propels the aircraft in the direction of its flight. Got it. And that would be like from your engine. Mm -hmm. So basically, to fly. You need to have more thrust forward than drag backwards, more lift up than weight down. Sounds easy. Now, it's lift that the Wrights aren't getting enough of. And it's lift where aerodynamics gets interesting because people can't seem to settle on what creates lift in the first place. Ooh, wait, that's, that makes me feel so much better because I've gone through my whole adult life being like, I don't know how an airplane gets off the ground. And now I know that the physicists don't know either. <laughs> and as a physics nerd, I've like spent time writing scripts on this sort of thing before. And Angie puts me right, as we'll soon see. There are two ways that the generation of lift is normally explained, uh, through either Bernoulli's equation or through Newton's third law of motion. I've seen some heated arguments between scientists and engineers about which of these is the correct one. I love that these are these are the issues of import in the scientific community. It actually turns out that neither is good enough by itself, but let's quickly break each one down. So first, we have to talk about the special shape of an aircraft's wing. <gasps> okay, I think I kind of know what's going on here, and let mm. me explain it in, sure. in my very simple biologist terms. Essentially, you have a curved airplane wing, and the air on the top has to travel faster than the air on the bottom, which creates some kind of differential force lifting the airplane up. Almost spot on. And I think almost 
falling into the same trap that I did. Oh, okay. All possibly, right. possibly. Tell me right, tell so, me right. so yeah, the top is pretty curved. The yeah. top's a super curved one. The bottom one's kind of flat. If you were to cut through it, that shape we see, it's called an aerofoil oh, nice. or airfoil in the States. The Wright brothers tested over 200 different airfoil shapes in the wind tunnel. You got to do some some rapid prototyping for that. That's awesome. Amazing, isn't it? So they're trying to find the best aerofoil shape, the one that creates the most lift. And the first explanation for how that lift is created is the Bernoulli's principle. So when air passes over an aerofoil, uh, the air flowing over the top of the wing is moving faster than the air flowing underneath. Got it. Right, okay. that's what you said. Yep. Um, that faster moving air on top is at a lower pressure oh, yeah, okay. than the slower moving air underneath. So the way I kind of picture it is like, as the air moves over the top, because it has to go faster, it gets thinner in a way? Yeah, faster moving air is thinner, less dense. Right, so there's more pressure from the air underneath the wing. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you might have experienced this yourself if you're stood next to a train platform and a train rushes in front of you. So it feels like you're being sucked into the train. Totally. Right, that's why you've got to stand behind the yellow line. Um, and that's because that fast moving train creates faster moving air in front of you than the air behind you. You're not being sucked in though, Right, it's actually the slower moving, higher pressure air molecules behind you, essentially knocking on you more and pushing you forwards into that area of less air molecules in front of you, fewer air molecules. Right. And that's where Newton comes in, right, with that third law. Oh, okay, so we're about to get to that. Okay, okay we're about okay. to get to that. So an airplane wing is essentially the same thing. Slower air molecules below pushing the wing Right, it's just a law in physics that things move from uh, higher pressures to lower Got pressures. Yep. So that kind of makes sense. That's the Bernoulli principle. That's this notion of the airflow faster on the top, slower on the bottom, lifting it up. But the problem is the Bernoulli principle doesn't explain why air moves faster over a curved surface. Okay, wait. This is like an existential question of <laughs> like existence. <laughs> I remember hearing it said that um, the air gets split at the front and it has to meet up back again at the back of the wing at the trailing edge. And because the air on the top has further to travel, it has to do that faster. Mm -hmm. And you put me right though. Ooh. The equal transit theory that the air flowing over the top of the wing is gonna reach the back of the wing at the same time as the airflow flowing underneath the wing is, is incorrect. Well, okay, <laughs> whoops. Was that what you were thinking as well? 100%. Okay, cool, wasn't, wasn't just me. And now the other issue with Bernoulli is that planes can actually fly upside down. Oh my God, wait, you're Sometimes, right. Sometimes, for a short distance, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I completely forgot about that fact. <laughs> and in that instance, the curved part is uh, underneath. So yeah. what's happening there? Yeah. So the other idea, Newton's third law. Newton's third law says that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So how this applies to lift generation is that when the airflow flows over the bottom and the top of the wing, it creates a downward motion. And that downward motion then creates an equal and opposite reaction up, which creates that lift force. Again, I was slightly wrong with my understanding here. So I thought that it was all about air molecules basically hitting the bottom of the wing and bouncing off, and then that equal and opposite reaction pushes the thing up. Mm. But again, Angie was like, no, it actually comes from the air being deflected downwards off that training edge. So which explanation should you go for? If someone asks you the question, how does a plane fly? I'm gonna say Bernoulli and Newton. 
Those right. two guys. <laughs> Angie, what's your thought? I think um, both of them as correct as explanations. You just need to realize that they both interact together really in order to explain how lift is generated. And the problem is that aerodynamics is very complicated. Yeah, okay, no kidding. <laughs> so if you're really going to understand uh, lift and drag forces, you need a couple of differential equations, so called Euler's laws. And then if you include viscosity, it's the Navier-Stokes equations. I've heard all of these names and I, I do not ever want to have to do these. Nope, we're not going into them. <laughs> no, no, we're good, we're done. It's really cool though, because now I do actually feel like I could answer the question and it makes me feel better because every time I encounter anything in physics and I'm like, I think I get it. And then somebody else is like, actually take it one step further. It's always one step further. <laughs> so the only reason I wanted to go through that, I guess, is because the Wright brothers are testing all these different aerofoil shapes and they decide to switch from an oval kind of elliptical shape that Otto Lilienthal went for, for something more rectangular. They work out that that will give them more lift. Well, and I have a question. Do they, are they aware of this math? Like, do they have these equations and are you, are they using that to inspire their designs or are their designs just trial and error? Like hard and fast, make it with my hand, see what works. That's a great question. I'm pretty certain Bernoulli's principle was already a thing. There was a guy called Octave Chanute that I'm not going to go into, but he did loads of work on the theory side of it. So there's loads of theory, just not many people have actually put it into practice. Okay, okay. So these guys are the first, like, hands-on. We're going to take these ideas and see, see what and happens. And they're actually doing those tests in the wind tunnel. <sighs> Wicked cool. They also work out that long, slender wings generate more lift than short, stubby ones as well. So they've kind of pieced this all together, right? But there is one last thing they need to sort out. To change direction when flying a hang glider, you just like swing your body to one side. Oh, yep, yeah, okay. But that's not going to work in an airplane, right? As Peter explains. You couldn't fly a modern airliner by shifting the pilot's body. The only way that works is if the body weight and the weight of the aircraft are relatively similar. So the Wrights realized that to make an airplane that was going to be able to be developed into something practical, they needed an aerodynamic solution. Once again, I have flown so many times in my life, I have literally never thought about how you steer an airplane. <laughs> well, fortunately, I had the most wonderful chat with Angie, and she's going to take us through it. In order to control your aircraft, you need to control its attitude through three different axes, girl, pitch, and yaw. Okay. Roll is the up and down movements of the wings of the aircraft, and that causes the aircraft to turn. Of the wings. Yeah, like this. I'm, I'm kind of like doing a model okay, airplane okay, okay. And, and wiggling my... So like my... tilting the, the airplane one side to the other so that That's like it. the wing One goes... wing up, one wing down. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Pitch is the up and down movement of the nose of the aircraft, so, so that causes the up and down motion. Okay, yeah. So like the phrase pitch it forward means like throw it on the ground. It's like, okay, you pitch down dip towards down the ground. Dip up. Up. Yeah. Okay, okay. And then yaw, you can think of as the movement of the nose of the aircraft side to side. Okay. So that's like, um, waggle. It's like, yeah, it's like pivoting okay. almost. It's like look left, look right. Okay. The problem is, uh, without being able to chuck their body weight around, like you would in a glider, they couldn't achieve all three of these movements until they came up with wing warping. Ooh, catchy. They came up with this notion that if they could alter the angle of the wing on either side of the craft they could generate more lift on one side than the other side that would cause that side to rise and then bank the wings okay is this what like if you sit near a window on the wing of a you know big commercial plane and the flaps come up and down is that what this is slightly different okay so they weren't using flaps what they were actually doing was well here's peter 
simply twisted the entire wing through a series of cables and pulleys, and that caused this differential lift, and that's what enabled them to fly. Oh, I think I've actually seen models that do that. Yeah. And that is so cool to watch them. So they actually twist the wings themselves, which changes the shape, so it changes the amount of lift you it get. It tilts the top of the wing, yeah. like forward or back, so you can change the way that that air is moving over and under. Spot on which gives you more lift on one side than the other side, and essentially wing warping allows you to roll, to lift one wing and to drop the other. Without it, that's basically what was happening in the European planes, okay? They couldn't do this. You just kind of go where you go. You just make really slow turns while staying pretty much level <laughs> to the ground. The brothers realized that if you combine that wing warping with rudder deflection, so moving your rudder side to side, you can yaw, you can rotate easily left and right, and combining all those different things, you can do epic turns and banks and figures of eight. Brilliant, that is so, so genius. And so they get this like really agile machine that yep. does really cool looking stuff in the air. Which obviously isn't their initial aim. They just want to fly first. Sure, sure, sure. But you've but got to be able to control the thing. The fact that it does cool tricks is an added bonus. It's fascinating. The Wright brothers were the first to demonstrate active control of all three of both roll, pitch, and yaw. They had actually come up with wing warping a couple of years earlier and Wilbur had tried it out on his biplane kite. But now they've got the calculations, they've got the design nailed. It's time to build their plane and go out and try to fly it. Um, okay, so I have a question. We've discussed everything so far except the thrust, right? So mm -hmm. the engine. And mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, Greg, have you ever seen the movie Kiki's Delivery Service? I have not. Okay, so uh, I will not go into great detail, but uh, the bikes reminded me there's a character in this movie who makes a flying bicycle. Right. And he propels it by pedaling the pedals. And so when you mentioned the bikes and then we're missing the engine, I was like, do they pedal the bike to power the airplane? <laughs> Ooh, okay. I'm going to get into kind of how they launched in a bit because that's kind of one of these like areas of contention discussion. Ooh. But yes, you're right, they need an engine. That is what I'm picturing in my head this whole time. And that turns out to be a lot harder than they thought it would be. They realized they could not find a manufacturer who could make a gasoline engine light enough and powerful enough and inexpensive enough. So they set about and designed their own engine. They had a mechanic in their shop who would help them build the bicycles. They designed and built their own. Ugh, amazing. Because of course that makes perfect sense. I mean, engines are these like big honking pieces of metal. And then of course you have to carry the fuel. So that adds so much weight to your apparatus that you're going to have to deal with. And you need more than an engine as well, right? You need the thing that the engine attaches to to actually create the thrust. Is that a propeller? Uh-huh. Hey! Now they thought, well, propellers are used on ships. So we'll just adapt that. And they realized that a ship propeller is not adaptable in an aer aeronautical context. Astute observation. So they created the world's first aeronautical propeller. And this is one of their greatest achievements. That is so cool. I had no idea that they were behind the propeller for the plane. Because, of course, like a boat, you've got the propeller on the butt in the back that, like, pushes you <laughs> forward. Butt, yeah. You know, <laughs> whatever. What's the what's Stern? that called? Yeah, one no, of those. No, hang on. Forward? Uh, Bow? Aft? I think it's aft. I don't know. <laughs> We're terrible sailors. Yeah, we really are. We would be hopeless at sea. Uh, but then, of course, in an airplane, you need it on the front, which I have never understood. And it's a different density of fluid that of you're course. moving through right. as well. So, yeah, not only did they design and build an engine, they also developed the first airplane propeller. How do you test it? Well, you just got to go and try to fly it. Oh, God. So they pack up their stuff. They head back to Kitty Hawk to make the first piloted, powered, controlled, sustained, heavier than air flight ever. I hope they're wearing helmets. That, though, and the story of two other chaps who some have claimed were actually the first to fly, 
is coming up after a quick layover. Eh, uh, correct. These are great. <laughs> it's a quick break for the ads. Here you go. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. It is December the 14th, 1903. Not we today, are at, but... Correct. Uh, we are at Kitty Hawk, and the Wright brothers are about to do something historic. They've actually been at Kitty Hawk for a couple of months since we left them last. Uh, they've had a few problems testing the engine and the propeller. Orville actually had to return home to Dayton, Ohio to get new parts, but he is back and they are ready. They uh, tossed a coin to see who would be the first uh, pilot. Wilbur won the toss. The first person to go up in the plane that they've never tested before to go up in the air with the stuff. Okay, mm -hmm. cool, cool. <laughs> However, that first flight on the 14th was uh, a little bit abortive. Uh, the airplane lurched up quite quickly on takeoff and was just in the air only for a couple of seconds and came down on the front canard and damaged it a little bit. Yeah, I can imagine. I cannot believe somebody would get in that machine. I, I mean, I guess that really motivates you to get it right. Right. <laughs> well, actually, here you go. Read this. Here's a bit of the letter from what Orville wrote because they had to repair it for a few days, which brings us to December the 17th, 1903, which makes it Orville's time to pilot because they're taking it in turns. Yeah, read this. So this is Orville in a letter. I would hardly think today of making my first flight on a strange machine in a 27 mile wind, even if I knew that the machine had already been flown and was safe. After these years of experience, I look with amazement upon our audacity in attempting flights with a new and untried machine under such circumstances. Yeah, audacity is definitely the right word there, I think. So Orville takes off, he is in the air for 12 seconds and i've got a photo that apparently captures that historic moment okay one of the most famous photographs ever taken uh, i think most people have seen that shot of the right flyer just lifting off the launching rail with wilbur trailing alongside one of the few times we have a photograph of the eureka moment the moment of invention you know that's the moment where humans first flew in a, a true airplane whoa that is really cool. I mean, first of all, it's just, it's kind of a beautiful photograph, like composition-wise, and the plane itself is beautiful too. It's got these wonderfully balanced wings with struts in between, and they're on a beach, and there's a figure looking at it in the distance, and you can see it's windy. Can you see Orville on the actual plane? I'm gonna have to take a closer look. Is he lying on yeah. his front? He's like lying on his belly. I can see his feet. Yeah. That's Took me a while to spot him. He got in the, that's how he was piloting the airplane. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Can you imagine just face first hurtling? <laughs> there it is. There's that eureka moment that, that Peter's talking about. And they kept flying. They kept trying to go further and to stay in the air longer. And the real success came on their fourth flight of the morning. Wilbur was the pilot and the airplane flew almost a minute, 59 seconds in the air, 852 feet across the ground. Whoa. And that was the flight that really sort of clinched it because being in the air that long, clearly it was uh, sustaining itself, clearly it was under the control of the pilot, and they had truly flown. Right, so it's not just like bounce up, bounce back down, bounce up. Yeah, it wasn't up. a short hop, it was, <laughs> right. it was up there. It's actual flight, it's a real flight. That was huge at the time. It seems short right now. It seems like a short flight and a short distance, but very impressive. They'd hoped to do a whole load more flights that day, but... It was about noon at this time. It was awfully cold and windy and chilly. They uh, went inside in their hangar to warm up a little bit and have something to eat. And then they were gonna do further flights. But at the end of that last flight, a gust of wind came across the sand dunes, picked up the airplane, cartwheeled it, and damaged it beyond repair. No. Got it. 
awful end to the day. I mean, you had this huge triumph, and then you, your airplane just gets smashed. Smash. But there you go. That is the story of the Wright Brothers' historic 59 second. If only they'd done it for one more. 59 second. That's a bit rude of me, isn't it? Uh, just for ease, you know. One Come minute. on, man. They did their best. <laughs> so cruel of me, actually, isn't it? It's like a super cool achievement. I'm like, just one like, second just more. Just one more. Just one more, guys. Come on. 59 second, 852 foot, which is 260 meters flight in 1903. But were they the first to fly? This is the question. Some people say they weren't. Let me introduce you to Alberto Santos Dumont. Alberto Santos was one of the most interesting and and colorful figures of the early period of flight. He was born and grew up in Brazil, but he spent most of his adult life in Paris. He was interested in lighter than air flight first. Um, He did something really cool with a dirigible. Famously in 1901, made a flight around the Eiffel Tower. That's a great stunt. How cool. Just going a little circle around the Eiffel Tower. That must have been amazing to watch. So yeah, he flew an airship around the Eiffel Tower. Nice. Very nice. And he then moved on to heavier than air flight. And that is where uh, this claim comes from. He built a plane called the 14B. Okay. Is that and, like the, uh, model, the model number? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They all, yeah. They never have eventful names. I really. feel like they, you should just name them something more exciting, like boats, you know? On October the 23rd, he climbs up into 14B. Uh, he's wearing a dark formal suit you gotta over be, gotta a, be a well white dressed. shirt. He's got a tie. He's got a pocket square. Uh, and the ladder is removed and a dozen people pull 14B and Alberto Santos Dumont to the end of a field. Either side of a makeshift runway stand over a hundred similarly well-dressed onlookers, like gentlemen in bowler hats. It's the event of the season. And uh, Alberto's ready. The motor's turning. He leans forward, he accelerates along the grass, he fills the lift. Suddenly the wheels aren't touching anything, he is in the air. Okay. How do we know this? Well, there's a video of it. What? And I'm going to link to that video in the show notes if you want to go and watch it. Um, When he lands, he has flown a distance of 197 foot, so that's 60 metres, at a height of about 16 foot, so that's just shy of 5 metres. So little, kind of little. Yeah, not that far, to be honest. Uh, But it is far enough for the Aero Club de France and the Fédération... Oh, you got this, guy. You got this. Federa- okay, we got Fédération Aéronautique Internationale. We'll take that. The FAI uh, to certify that flight as the first powered heavier-than-air flight in Europe. That is so cool. Okay, wait. I'm still totally stuck on the video thing. What year is this that we have a video? Well, you see, I omitted the year, didn't I? October you did. the 23rd, 1906. Okay. But that, so the Wright brothers... That was three years. They were three years before him. Well, they supposedly flew three years before him. <gasps> Where's the intrigue? What's, what's the twist? Here's the thing, right? Well, there are a few things. So this is the first thing. The Wright brothers weren't interested in inviting an audience or the press mm-hmm. to watch those early flights. So there were no witnesses to those early flights. They did do a public flight in 1904, mm-hmm. the year after that historic Kitty Hawk flight. Uh, they did invite reporters, but only on the condition that they didn't take any photos. Wait, what? Why? Actually, probably a good thing, because they had engine problems, the wind was rubbish, oh. slack winds, uh, and they didn't actually fly. They managed one short hop, so probably <sighs> probably good that, you know, And they was that why they, they were like, don't come with your cameras, we don't know if, it, well, I, if it'll I think, work. <laughs> I think they just wanted to do it themselves, and for them it wasn't all about, like, yelling about it and showing off about it. So when Alberto flies in 1906, very few people in Europe 
essentially know what Wilbur and Orville have done. Sure. And that led one Paris edition of the Herald Tribune to write a report on the rights with the headline... Flyers or Liars? Ooh, nice, nice title. In fact, indeed, um, lots of people in Europe backed their local Parisian, yeah, Alberto. Of course. Uh, and in France, the rights were called bluffeurs, charlatans. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, that makes that makes sense. We've got, a, we've got a very strong patriotic national spirit for the innovators of France. But they did have photos of those early flights. You've seen one. True. You've seen that photo. Well, true, but like, can you say that they were off the ground for as long as they say they were or yeah. as far as they say they went? And there's a second thing. The proponents of Sancho are saying, well, the Wrights didn't have a true flight because they had to have this catapult to get it in the air. But that's not accurate because in 1903 at Kitty Hawk, they did not have a catapult. They took off on the rail. Marin, take a look at the photo again. Okay. You'll see. What do you see along the ground? Oh, yeah, I see like a little, like kind of like a track. So that's the rail. I asked Peter to describe um, what the setup is that the Wrights had on the sand here in Kitty Hawk. It was very simple. They laid a series of two-by-fours end-to-end with a metal sheath on top, and then the aircraft sat on a dolly that ran down this launching rail. They had a tower with a 1,600-pound drop weight on a pulley system that would give the airplane its initial momentum down the rail. Interesting. But Alberto's doesn't have that? And so then it comes down again to like what you're defining as what counts as real flight, kind of? Yeah. So some argue in 1903 that those flights weren't real flight because they were launched into the air. Right. They weren't under their own steam, Mm. so to speak. Peter, though, has no time for such claims. (laughs) It would be sort of like saying that a naval aircraft that takes off a ship using a catapult is not really flying. Okay, so he's got a bone to pick with the semantics of this argument. <laughs> because, and also, here's the thing, right? Orville and Wilbur, they didn't just do those flights in 1903 and then stopped, right? Nothing happened until Alberto did that public flight in 1906. No, 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 no. In October of 1905, they make a flight of nearly 40 minutes duration. Whoa, okay, really long. I can't believe they have enough fuel to stay in the air that long. That's incredible. So they had really perfected their design where the Europeans at this point were still just making straight-line hops with little control. But the Europeans are great at the, the publicity. At the sell. The, at the show yeah, yeah, of yeah, yeah. it. So yeah. the year after Kitty Hawk, the year before Alberto Santos Dumont's flight, the Wrights, who are now flying in a cow field in Dayton, right much close to the home, they did six long flights. This was in their new plane, the Wright Flyer 3, uh, including flying for 17 to 38 minutes over distances of 11 to 24 miles. Jeez Louise. So they've made huge progress. I mean, but, but do they invite anyone? Does anybody take photos? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Santos Dumont flew, <laughs> in comparison, 197 foot, 60 metres. Right, it's basically one of those straight line hops that Peter was talking yeah, about. Yeah, the comparison. There's no comparison there. Come on. I mean, compared to 38 minutes in Ohio. The proponents of Sancho are saying, well, the Wrights didn't have a true flight because they had to have this catapult to get it in the air. You're not going to fly for 40 minutes based on the momentum of a catapult launch. Dang, dang straight. As I said, Alberto was born and grew up in Brazil. And the Brazilians especially still celebrate him. Mm. Him and his plane actually featured in the opening ceremony of the uh, 2016 Summer Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Oh, very cool. He's, mm. he's like a national hero. It's still a very strong uh, feeling about Santos Dumont. And it's somewhat sad in that he did a lot in aviation. And he was a significant figure. He just didn't happen to be the first one to fly. But it tends to get focused around that. And, and in my view, uh, somehow detracts from the accomplishments that he actually did achieve. I feel like this obsession with being first or defining who was first kind of takes away some of the colorfulness of this story and the fact that they could both, you know, do cool stuff. 
Yeah. And do you want to know about the other person? I totally forgot there was another person. <laughs> what is this other person doing? There's another person. Oh Gustav Whitehead. This time the claim is that he flew before the rights. Like pre-1903. A couple of years before. The basic story is that he built an aircraft called the number 21. See, they need catchier names, Greg. Which in 1901 reportedly made flights of a half a mile and a mile and a half. Okay, so that's that's pretty significant. There's a story about this in the Bridgeport Herald a couple of days after it happened. Now, the Bridgeport Herald is a weekly provincial paper uh, telling of the comings and goings in Connecticut. But the story is later retold in the New York Herald, the Washington Times and newspapers all around the world. Word spreads. The original article uh, quotes two eyewitnesses who tell of how uh, Gustav had to dodge a clump of trees and how he (laughs) flew half a mile and then he landed, quote, so lightly that Whitehead was not jarred in the least. This is an excellent story of daring do. There was a drawing of the airplane, number 21, and there was a later article, this time in New York's The Evening World, which included a photo of Gustav and his airplane. So, did he beat the Wright brothers to flight? I need to know, Greg. What do we think? The primary evidence for that is this Bridgeport Herald article, uh, which uh, identifies two eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses later made statements that they were never there and it didn't fly. Uh, Sorry, I just was speechless for a hot second. My mouth was wide open. No, he lied. Or like maybe paid them and they lied. Oh my God, Greg. Peter said that the photo of the plane, number 21, is real. He built the plane, right? There's an engine on it. Um, But Peter says it's just very inefficient, not a very sound technical plane. Uh, And those claims, he says, are just completely spurious. Amazing. So we think Gustav is a pretender. In 1903, 1904, he starts building a series of crude gliders. If he had built an airplane that could fly seven miles out over the water in 1901, 1902, why is he abandoning that and, and building these crude, unsuccessful gliders just a year or two later? Good point. Good point. I think it's fair to say that all the evidence supports that the Wright brothers were indeed the first to achieve that piloted power sustained controlled heavier than air flight in 1903. Using our, our five commandments from the beginning, if you don't take issue with the launch rail, then yeah, I'm with you. And all this leaves me with two big reflections on the challenge of telling stories from science history. Okay. The first is that we have to have materials to base our stories on. We have to have sources. We have to have trustworthy sources, okay, to connect them together. Cite your sources. And you've got people like the Wright brothers who don't want the limelight, right? They don't want their historical flight in public. They got photos but they're not sharing them far and wide then others are not going to know about those achievements and those other people might start making claims that they were first to get there totally the role of publicity in science is not just exclusive to today it totally affects the way we remember science too because if you're not talking to the press if you're not making a big deal out of it there's not media coverage then what do we remember who do we remember and how do we remember it which we could argue is a pity right? That you need to do that kind of PR around it. But also, on the other hand, you could also argue that science just isn't done until it's communicated, that the communication at the end is part of the scientific process in order for it to be meaningful, impactful, far-reaching. Yeah, maybe. The second uh, big kind of thought of mine is 
about the stories that we choose to tell. Mm. And actually, Peter puts this beautifully. There's a, a George Bernard Shaw quote about invention. He said, there's three phases to invention. The first phase is it's impossible, it can't be done. The second phase, after somebody has accomplished it, well, it really wasn't all that difficult after all. And the third phase is somebody else did it first. I love that. He's so right. <laughs> we come across this all the time on this podcast, Greg. It's just kind of an interesting aspect of human nature that we like to find the lost hero and we like to take them down. Um, it's it's a fairly common thing, but this this one with the airplane seems to just never die. And I feel I should hold my hands up here, okay? The title that I gave this episode, the way that I planned the opener, I deliberately raised the possibility that what you've heard, that the Wright brothers were the first to fly may not be the case, okay? I did exactly that. And that idea likely intrigued you and it hooked you in. And even though I'd done the research, I'd discussed this with Peter, okay? I knew better than to perpetuate this classic narrative of the lost hero, but I did it anyway. Because <laughs> it makes for a good story. And I did it. I did it knowingly because oh. I wanted to raise this very point. But we're recognising it, right? We're, thing, be we're being right? self-aware. This is a meta conversation. <laughs> So I hope you'll forgive me. Well, and here, I think like when we reflect on science history, we're always looking for that through line, this this arc, this narrative arc, and to impose that on history that is messy and random and chaotic and And not... I didn't I didn't like just say that those people could have done it. We have concluded pretty clearly. We came to some hard conclusions, Greg. We cited our sources and we now know. And here's Peter's uh, clear conclusion as well. There was no race. There was no numerous other people on the verge of flight and the Wright brothers somehow edged them out or something like that. The bicycle bros are just doing their thing. Quietly, contentedly, and making they were flight happen. the first to fly. Um, let's wrap this up as we often do by thinking about legacy, okay? I've got such a wonderful little story, an awesome fact that Peter shared with me that I want to tell you just after this. But let's start with Angie. Here's what Angie says about the legacy of the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers did their own experimentation, but they were really standing on the shoulders of giants. And what they did on those shoulders was incredible. They invented aeronautical engineering in the modern sense. Of course, the use of their wind tunnel to design aircraft was central to this notion of flight testing. Right, all of these complicated concepts that we just went over, they've put together into something that you can actually use. To the birth of aeronautical engineering. What really separated them from everyone else is they understood that the airplane was a system. The airplane was not one invention, but it was many inventions, all of which had to work in concert for the machine to fly. And it's more than that. What's so critical to understand about the Wright brothers is that their airplane is the seminal aircraft. Every airplane that we fly on today has the same basic principles embodied in it. It's the foundation of modern aviation. And Peter actually said that if Wilbur and Orville were to walk into a modern aeronautical engineering laboratory, then they'd probably be able to recognize a lot of what was going on. That's so cool. Wouldn't it be incredible if we could bring them to the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum? Yeah, and a modern, like, lab as well. I'm just like, yeah, just, what do you think that does? What do you think that does? They could probably figure it out. Yeah, yeah I bet. <laughs> it's not so much that they were the first to fly, it's that they created an airplane that could evolve into something that could ultimately carry passengers, carry payload, and achieve what we have today. So that's the real genius of the right achievement, was that they created something that could evolve into what we have today. And what we have today aviation, aerospace engineering, has fundamentally completely changed the world. The way we travel, the way things are connected, the way we communicate, space exploration, 
all on the wings of this tiny rickety airplane. Yeah, with Orville lying there on the front. Yeah, <laughs> on his tummy. <laughs> and you mentioned space. Um, let's end with this, this lovely little story. It's a fact you can tell your mates. Uh, here it is. We have the Wright Brothers uh, aircraft at the Smithsonian Institution. And we also have uh, the Apollo 11 command module, the, the spacecraft that first took humans to the surface of the moon in, the, in 1969. On board the Apollo 11 spacecraft was a little piece of fabric and wood from the Wright Brothers airplane that Neil Armstrong took with him. <laughs> Armstrong was from Ohio and the Wright Brothers were heroes of his. Oh, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> it's so exciting. <laughs> oh, it is amazing. I love a fun fact like that. In 66 years, 1903 to 1969, essentially one human lifetime, we went from the first tentative steps into the air to walking on the surface of the moon. So it also is a testament of just how rapid the development of this technology was. And that little bit of fabric and wood taken to the moon has a uh, great power in its symbolism. Oh my God, I've got my hands on my head. This is so cool. It didn't even occur to me that this is one human lifetime from the first plane to walking on the moon. I'm freaking out, Greg. It's so, I mean, that's so emotive. <laughs> Incredible. Just hearing that, it's, um, I just love that. Me too. It gives me goosebumps, like the power of human innovations. I don't often feel like super hopeful or optimistic about our future, but that just made me feel really, really, really good about humans and our innovation. I think that's one of the best facts and stories totally I've heard 100% oh my god Greg thank you so much that was oh, so pleasure. cool pleasure really enjoyed uh, digging into this one which means it's time to say our thank yous and our goodbyes um, mm -hmm. today's experts were the chief curator of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum Dr. Peter Jacob and aerospace engineer and formal naval flight officer Dr. Angie Cruz thank you both so much for your time and for your knowledge. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, then please do rate and review us wherever you've been listening to it. And please do spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant to anyone you think might enjoy this episode. We have many more episodes on their way, so subscribe to catch them all when they come out. And if you've got a story from science history that you'd like us to tell or a discovery, an invention, a person that you'd like to know the story behind, you can email us brilliant at seeker.com. And if you'd like to get in touch on social media, uh, this is Marin Hunsberger. She goes by at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter, but at Marin B, B-E-A, on Instagram. And that there is Greg Foote, who is, helpfully, Greg Foote, on both Twitter and Instagram. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. This episode was written by me, Greg Foote. My co-host is Marin Hunsberger, and our producer was Sylvia Lazarus. This episode was edited by Lucas Bollinger. We had support from the team at Seeker, including Caroline Roth, Jessica Young, Megan Bates, and Megan Fu, and from the group band podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld. The show's executive producers are me, Marin, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hatagadur. And you can find out more about Seeker at seeker.com. We'll chat to you next time. See ya! <laughs>